Please turn with me in your Bibles again to the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel, chapter 21. This morning we'll be looking at the first 14 verses of 2 Samuel, verse chapter 21. This chapter marks the beginning of a new division in Samuel about David. The first division about David was from 1 Samuel chapter 15 through the 8th chapter of 2 Samuel. And we could call that a man after God's heart. This was the calling of by God on David to be God's anointed king. And then the second big division about David was from 2 Samuel chapter 9 through chapter 20. And we could call that a servant under God's rod. David is king, but he's under God's discipline most of the time, as we have seen. And now the last division about David from 2 Samuel chapter 21 through 24 could be entitled, A Kingdom in God's Hands. Many think that these four chapters are merely a haphazard kind of collection of fragments uh, stuck at the end of the book here just so they'd get in there somewhere. In other words, the author didn't know quite where to put all this information, so he just put them at the end. That very idea, though, reeks of a disregard for the inspiration of these words by the Holy Spirit himself. There is purpose and order here. And why is it so hard to see these chapters then for what they really are? This is a final kind of perspective on the kingdom of God as seen in the reign of David over Israel. And just for example, there is a literary pattern here that's really beautiful and it's really obvious once you must step back a little bit and look at these four chapters. There are actually six sections in these four chapters. And the last three sections mirror the first three. Um, For instance, today in the first section, there's a famine that results from Saul, yes, King Saul's sin, um, and that famine is, is stopped in the first 14 verses of chapter 21. And the mirror image of the first section is the last section, at the end of the book, section 6, where we see a plague resulting from David's sin and how it's stopped. And then in sections 2 and and 5, they mirror one another. The next section we'll look at is the human agents of David's success, about the men who fought and killed four Philistine giants. In the fifth section, the next to the last section in this book, are about more human agents of David's success, about David's mighty men and their exploits. And then in the middle, sections 3 and 4, 
We see David's song of praise for his deliverance in chapter 22. And then right after that, David's last words in chapter 23, verses 1 through 7. So if you step back and you see what's going on here, you can see there's mirrored information that God thinks is so important, he put, him, he put all this in his word, and there's some definite reasons why. Now, the perspective that we'll get today from the first 14 verses of chapter 21 is usually one that every single one of us would try to avoid if we could. Our text today is about a famine resulting from Saul's sin, which is stopped. You'll see why in just a second if you haven't, uh, if you are not familiar with this passage. If you're able, would you please stand as I read chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you, and how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It's not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, well, what do you say that I shall do for you? And they said to the king, to David, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all of Israel... All the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us, so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ahiah, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Mirab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Maholothite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest, at the beginning of barley harvest. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Ahiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. 
And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Ahiah, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged, and they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin, and Zelah the tomb of Kish his father. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I hope you meant it when you said thanks be to God. This is a hard passage, is it not? We really have no idea, first of all, about the chronology of our text today. The only time reference for the context is the very first verse, in the days of David, which could be any time during David's reign. And most think, though, that because of the hint that we have in verse 7, that Mephibosheth was already with David in Jerusalem, that this famine happened after that which would mean after 2 Samuel chapter 9. But that's only a guess. The best way to handle a very hard text like this is not to skip in your reading program to the next chapter. It's to go through it with very careful observations. And because there's so much in here that is especially difficult for us in the 21st century to swallow, we must let the text speak clearly for itself. So my first plea is that every single one of us now in our hearts ask God to make clear what is so hard for us to swallow and to remember that he wrote this and he wrote it for a reason. So the first thing we notice in verses 1 and 2 is that God, in his mercy, did let David know what was wrong so he could then do something about it. A famine that lasts three years is very unusual, even in the Middle East. Something is definitely wrong here. And David does seek the face of the Lord. Verse 1. But, are you asking the same question as many others? You have to wonder why it took him so long. Why did it take David so long to seek the face of the Lord over the fact of this three-year-long famine. We don't know. He finally did, 
So that's what we're observing. And God, in his mercy here, doesn't hide the truth from the king. And you need to be asking why, because we'll see why. Why does God not hide the truth from him? Okay, Saul had sought to wipe out the Gibeonites, we learn, and in fact had slaughtered many or most. And God was not pleased. Why? Because there had been a constant oath, a covenant oath, a protection given to the Gibeonites by Joshua and the leaders and the people almost 400 years earlier. And this is all in Joshua 9, when the Israelites had gone into the land. God was not pleased. God was not pleased. Let's find out why. In Joshua 9, we learned that the people of Gibeon had heard about the Israelites coming into Canaan and defeating everyone who opposed them. So to keep from being wiped out, they sent some delegates to appeal to Joshua to make a covenant with them, and they would become Israel's servants. Y'all following this? 400 years earlier. Only they made themselves look like they had come from some faraway distant country as they showed up. Remember, the Israelites were commanded by God to get rid of all the peoples living in the promised land. In Joshua 4 and 5, we find out that the Gibeonite delegates, they wore worn out sacks. And they had them on their donkeys and there was worn out wine skins, torn and mended. There were worn out patched sandals. There were worn out clothes, worn out provisions, dry and crumbly. It was a good presentation of being way far away and coming in and getting a reprieve from being annihilated by offering to be the servants of these Israelites. And in Joshua 9, 14, it says, quote, that the men of Israel did not ask for counsel from the Lord during this particular event. They instead made, the actual word there is cut, a covenant with them. Joshua 9, verses 15 and 16. This means that they cut an animal in two halves and walked between the pieces, which was like saying this. It was a very, again, this may be hard for you to swallow, but this was a visual presentation of how serious a covenant is. It's like saying, as this animal is cut in pieces, may the same thing happen to us if we don't keep this oath. That was the point. The covenant oath was sworn before the Lord, the God of Israel, in Joshua 9.19. The Gibeonites then served Israel for the rest of their time, mostly as woodcutters and water haulers. But they lived and they were safe. So, 
400 years earlier, a covenant oath was made before the Lord. That means in His name. Israel swore never to harm the Gibeonites. And Gibeon swore to serve Israel. And that's why it was till... That's the way it was until Saul, King Saul, slaughtered many of them, we read in verse 2 of our chapter, in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. Now, don't get lost and try to find out where that happened. You won't. We learn about it right here. This is the place we learn about this event. And notice that Saul's zeal was not for the Lord. That shouldn't surprise us. Saul was commanded by God to get rid of the Philistines and the Amalekites, which he never really did completely. But the Gibeonites were an easy and a weak target, not like the Philistines and the Amalekites. So this is completely consistent with King Saul's quest for his own glory, over and above any that he could direct God's way. And if you need a war to increase your popularity ratings, always pick on somebody who's a pushover. It's kind of one of the principles we see being brought to bear down through history by every nation on the face of the earth, King Saul included. Now, God has brought this sin to his people's attention, what Saul had done here and wiping, trying to wipe him out, to the people's attention in the form of a three-year famine. And he tells David this. God is taking up the cause of the Gibeonites who had been wronged by Saul. But not only that, because Saul was Israel's king... This is not a personal sin, but it's a national or corporate sin. You have to remember that. That's what you need to know in order to help you swallow this information. Saul had violated Israel's oath. Okay, is everybody asking another question? Probably every one of you are. Why did God wait so long to bring this judgment to bear? Why now? In King David's reign, David who followed Saul as king. Because God frequently grants a lengthy time period for repentance. And we see that happen all the time, but we just look right over it. Because all we can see or what we consider to be the nasty details. Jesus' words to the wayward church in Thyatira also echo this particular thought. This is a good example. In Revelation 2.21, I have given her time to repent, this church, but she refuses to repent. The passage of time does not remove or lessen the guilt of sin. It may help forgetting, but see, the people shouldn't have forgotten. This needed to be taken care of. So, Old and New Testament, we see God exercising sometimes 
lengthy periods that he grants for repentance before he finally acts. The point is, will he finally act? Yes, he will. We don't think so, because nothing happens recently. Now back to an earlier question. Why was it merciful of God to tell David of the guilt of Israel that had never been dealt with? Can you answer that one? What do you mean? Merciful? I've already read what happens. Well, because now he, as king, David, he could do something to make this situation right. And this kindness of the Lord that is too quickly and easily looked over in our text, it's usually looked over because of what follows. We can't get past what follows, but we need to get this information first so that we can think about it and learn what God wants us to learn about him and how serious our sin is. So now to verses 3 through 9. This is gory, it's bloody, but this is about atonement. David humbly hears the Lord's perspective. Did you notice that? Which is the only perspective that really matters. Hint, hint. That means for me, and it means for you. And he humbly asked the Gibeonites what he could do and how he could make atonement. Why? We read in the last part of verse 3, that you, the Gibeonites may bless the heritage of the Lord. And notice, too, the humble attitude of the Gibeonites. They hadn't brought this up. This is not a demonstration in downtown Jerusalem demanding something be done. They hadn't said a word. But they were suffering from this drought as well. And David had gone to them because God, through his famine, had finally gotten King David's attention. And when asked, they were forthright, but they're not vengeful. They more or less said something like this. This is not a case to settle out of court with damaged payments. And yet we do not have, we do not have, the Gibeonites do not have the authority or the means to put as many people to death as were killed. That's basically what they're saying. So David then asked, and notice he asked humbly again, what do you say that I shall do for you? And the Gibeonites' answer gives us Give us seven of Saul's, King Saul's sons or grandsons, and we will hang them before the Lord of Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. Can you swallow yet? And David agrees. Can you swallow that? Our first reactions are usually something like this. We're screaming. 
Why can't some other way be found? Can't they talk it out? Can't some other arrangement be made? Well, there's two basic reasons that some kind of more palatable palatable solution was not possible. And those reasons are blood and God's wrath. First, the blood part. Saul's butchery polluted the land with their blood. And atonement cannot be made for it except by the blood of the one who shed it. Numbers 35, verse 33. Secondly, what about God's wrath? Saul had violated a covenant oath. They had asked God to bring wrath upon them should they ever break their word as a nation, Israel. But he was the king speaking for everyone. And that's what happened. That's what's happening here. The Gibeonites demand that this curse be carried out and God's wrath stands behind Gibeon's claim. Why? Because they made this covenant before the Lord. The Lord brought the famine and he kept it going. A clear sign as David heard this from the Lord that the Lord's wrath was kindled because of a serious and grave national sin. In other words, God's wrath must be appeased or satisfied or the word propitiated. Now folks, this is an example that points to the necessary atonement that we need in order to be able to stand before the Lord God Almighty. Jesus propitiated. He turned aside the wrath due to us and took it upon himself as he bore our sins. So this is the same kind of thing. Some of you are now asking yourselves about Deuteronomy 24, verse 16, if you know that principle. That's the verse that says, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. But remember, this is not an individual sin. This is the breaking of a covenant oath by the people of Israel because the king of Israel, Saul, butchered some people he was sworn to protect. Should the covenant be broken, all Israel would be liable for it, even if only one man, Saul, was the primary instigator. But Saul was dead. As we read this, David is king. So they asked for seven sons or grandsons of Saul's. 
Seven, the number signifying completeness. And those seven would stand in his place. Saul's place. This whole scene is a scene of horror. And we should be horrified as we see this. Yet, there is verse 7, which shows us the safety of covenant. Because look at this. David wasn't about to break his own covenant oath to Jonathan, Saul's son, his best friend. But you say, Jonathan was dead too. Yeah, but through David's covenant agreement with Jonathan, he swore to take care of Mephibosheth, Jonathan's crippled son. So, he wasn't about to give over Mephibosheth to be one of those seven, to be executed for Saul's sin of oath-breaking. And back in 1 Samuel 20, verse 15, that's where David and Jonathan made a covenant. This covenant between them, David promised to show devoted love, steadfast love to Jonathan's house. And David was faithful to that promise in 2 Samuel 9, and here he continues to be faithful to Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. And what's the point? We're supposed to marvel here at the contrast that we see that this here between Saul breaking the national covenant oath to the Gibeonites and David keeping his covenant oath to Saul's grandson, Mephibosheth. That should just really be the thing that overwhelms our sight here in our hearts. With all the covenant breaking going on in our text, it seems as though the Lord is also interjecting an example of covenant keeping. As if to say something like, there is a king who keeps covenant. And David's commitment points beyond itself to, one commentator said, the flaming fidelity of the final Davidic monarch who is charged to lose none of those his father has given to him. The Davidic king has committed himself to our safety and this example of David continuing to protect Mephibosheth is meant to encourage us as we remember the horror of this story. On to verse 10 and four, through 14. This deals with some unbelievably deep feelings associated with the consequences of breaking covenant. Who were the seven who were executed before the Lord? Well, there was two sons of Rizpah, who was a concubine of Saul. And there were five sons of Mirab, the daughter of Saul. 
When were they executed? Did you notice that? Tell you what, I read this, I don't know how many times before it went, oh, <laughs> somebody made this point and went, oh yeah, when are they executed? Did you forget about the famine? They were executed in the first days of harvest. At the beginning of the barley harvest. But I thought there had been a three-year famine. That's exactly the point. Do you think anybody could miss the point here? At the beginning of the barley harvest, which would be mid-April, when the people should have been celebrating a bountiful harvest, they were struck again with the lack of harvest from three years of famine, and the bodies of these seven sons of Saul were left outside for everyone to see, either hung or impaled, to demonstrate the atonement for the breaking of the covenant. And we think technology has made life more graphic. The oath to the Gibeonites by Saul and thus by the nation as a whole is demonstrated by the atonement of the seven grandsons of Saul. And yet Mephibosheth is safe. But what about Rizpah? She mourns and grieves and there was so much she was absolutely helpless to change. But she still did what she could. Which was protecting the bodies of her sons and the five and the other five from the birds and wild animals. Which would be the ultimate desecration. She could not prevent the executions or the exposure, but she could do this. And we don't really know how long she was out there. And don't forget that as a concubine, which we've seen so many consequences come from these particular sins anyway, she had no voice. None. So apparently... This moved David so much as he heard about what she was doing. What did he do? As an act of respect and tribute, he gathers the bones of Saul and Jonathan from Jabesh Gilead and these seven men And he gives them an honorable burial in their home territory, which was Benjamin, where Saul's tribe was from. Now, why is all this in the text? You're going, exactly, would you get to the point? We've already seen it in part. But what does God intend to make clear to us here? Well, consider this. Maybe the question is not how to immediately figure out some way to apply this to our lives. 
maybe the intention of ending this passage today with five verses of what's known as pathos is to get us to stay there for a while, which we don't want to do. We don't want this on our minds as we go about the rest of our day. But maybe that's exactly what God wants. He wants it to sink in. He wants us to feel it. So we shouldn't be afraid of being solemn. We shouldn't be afraid of hurting with her. Of seeing her situation and feeling it. Don't miss the sadness because you're already thinking about what else you have to do today. You see, we may know in our hearts something about this sad truth. That covenant breaking brings all sorts of misery and heartache. Because it does. And you may have experienced much of that. But this text not only is saying this, it's punctuating it with the grief that goes with it. And sometimes that's just what we need to connect what we know with what's in our hearts. My personal opinion is that in the culture that we live in, that is way too fast. We can't stand to think about anything because it hurts or we don't like it or we want to feed our own desires. And we miss out on so very much of what God wants us to know in our hearts about how we grieve Him about our need, about why he loved us so much he sent his son for us. And we need time to feel these things. A lot of times we think, well, I felt it enough in my own personal experience when this happened or that happened or what's happening right now. That's true. But the question is, are you taking this to him? This writer can be compared to a certain psalm writer who knows how to stop to consider and ponder things like the wrath of God. I mean, try that conversation, Star. Somebody says, how are you doing today? And you have been pondering the wrath of God. Well, it's been a rough day. I've been pondering the wrath of God. You can almost guarantee, unless that person knows you well and loves you very much and knows the Lord, that conversation will be over. True? But listen to Psalm 90, verse 11. Who considers the power of your anger? He's talking to God. And your wrath, according to the fear of you. Psalms are full of this kind of pondering. And this writer of 2 Samuel in our text today seems to be saying, stay here, feel this as you think about it, because it really is, if you, even if you don't think so, 
good for you. Share this tragedy. Why? So that you will never, ever forget it. Consider what it cost to rid your land of famine. Israel, Gibeonites. Consider the cost of taking the Lord's name in vain, which what that's what it means to break covenant before the Lord. Was breaking the covenant oath and invoking the wrath of the Almighty Holy God something to rationalize and trifle with? Those are the questions for the Israelite, but you see how they directly apply to us. Directly. Now we need to pray. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, you tell us the beginning of wisdom is to rightly fear you. You are a maker. You are worthy of our worship. Service, love, devotion. And we know how our hearts stray so often from any and all of those attitudes that give rise to actions that would would show those things to you and to others. Oh God, thank you that you care so much about us, that you show us the mercy of what's really true about us. And you provide the answer for our dilemma in the person of your son, Jesus Christ, who physically demonstrated the atonement for our sins by hanging and dying on the cross for us. And in putting our sin upon him, He has cloaked us with his righteousness for all who believe in him. That we can stand before you and know peace with you. Oh God, but that doesn't mean we trifle with you, that we take you for granted, and we do. Oh Lord, we pray that you would build in our hearts and minds a reverent fear and respect that can enjoy you the real joy of knowing the Lord God Almighty through the gift of His Son. The joy of serving you because you have saved us from darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of light. Because you have forgiven all of our sins in Christ Jesus the Lord as we believe in Him. And we pray that that would be weighty and that it would be in our hearts and grow in our understanding. And we pray that we could encourage one another in standing for you and keeping keeping our promises before you, depending upon you to do that, knowing that, that Jesus has covered all of our sin with his blood. Oh God, what a passage, but thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand for our benediction.
the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. You're dismissed.